All right, we're talking about Tyron Woodley today. Welcome to Tangra Dome episode, whatever. I don't care. Theme of the episode, I don't care. Uh, I mean, do you want me to go in depth about what we're going to talk about today? Is there much to discuss? Actually, there is. Uh, recently, there's been, uh, well, a week ago, which uh, I guess in combat sports terms was ages ago, but still. Recently, there's been a fight, and Tyron Woodley was featured in that fight. He was the main event, the main draw, alongside one of the Paul brothers. And uh, don't worry, we're not going to analyze that, this, that fight, because, I mean, who gives a shit? And uh, uh, most people who actually analyzed the fight in earnest, mostly also shared my sentiment and mostly did that because it, it gets a lot of views. But in this case, we're going to use Tyron Woodley as a jumping off point to discuss some other more substantial things. Because, uh, I mean, not to shit on Tyron Woodley. Well, r really, I, I am going to shit on Tyron Woodley because I'm going to say up front that there's not much to discuss about him specifically. But there's a lot of different interesting things you you may be able to gleam from some of the issues he's faced and uh, how he's perceived in the combat sports culture and uh namely the mma fandom and uh, there, there are numerous problems uh, with tyron woodley when it comes to people evaluating his skill and it's kind of like the most illustrative example we have of uh, the limitations the current fan base has with regards to evaluating skill and uh, fight analysis. So, uh, the brain genius behind this topic, and uh, the fucking insane person who decided we should have this talk was Hacks. Hacks, explain why you, you, you want to make us do this, you piece of shit. <laughs> well, I think Tyron Woodley is an interesting example to talk about because he is a fighter who had a very rapid rise to championship relevance and then he had an equally quick or arguably even quicker and even more one-dimensional and one-sided fall. And I think because, you know, if you want to think about it, it's like shooting straight up and then crashing straight down. That is a type of... Um, a type of problem that a lot of MMA analysis and MMA analytics and even the dreaded word MMA statistics has proven pretty bad at solving. So, you know, here's a unique problem. I think, you think, Dan thinks people have struggled a bit to put some context on this. So let's talk about it. Yeah, <clears throat> Tyron Woodley is kind of an interesting case because... Uh, He's like the combination of his actual skill set uh, versus his career accomplishments, credentials, and notable wins uh, kind of like skew his perception uh, a lot, quite a quite a bit in the MMA fandom. <clears throat> Especially, for example, uh, a very good example would be his win over Darren Till, which essentially broke people's brains and made people think that both Tyron Woodley and Darren Till are much more skillful and dangerous than they than they've proven to be uh over the course of his of their both fighters careers which was very weird but if you it may seem very weird at first glance but when you 
dig a little deeper, it actually makes a lot of sense why they've fallen off so hard. Like, uh, there's been a, a, um, a tweet circulating around, as it does, and there's um, a picture of uh, Darren Till. One is uh, Darren Till in his, uh, I guess, quote-unquote prime, or during his during the period during which he was rising in the public eye, and the other picture is him uh, immediately after losing to Derek Brunson. And uh, naturally, he's, uh, he's like one, only one out of his last five, so he's one and four currently. And the, uh, the, the post was captioned with, like, what happened to Darren Till? And I suppose at the end of this discussion, I mean, we're not discussing Darren Till, we're discussing Darren Woodley, but at the, still, nevertheless, at the end of this discussion, I, I suppose the goal of this discussion is to make the listener understand why it happened this way and what actually happened to both Tyron Woodley and Darren Till. <laughs> another similar cases, another similar situations with uh, with fighters' careers. But yeah, uh, I guess first of all, uh, first of all, I guess uh, since this is a follow up, I, I have to point this out, uh, get this uh, out of the way right away. This is a follow up discussion to this is. I, I guess you can think of this as a, the culmination to all the discussions that we've had regarding analysis in MMA. Uh, all the way back, going all the way back to the first, the very first Analysis 101 podcast with me and Dan as well. And uh, Hacks was also there. And followed with the, um, I guess, the MMA Econ 101 discussion, which also had a lot to do with uh, the use of statistics in MMA as well. And uh, the the episode... Um, Episode 19 of Tengredome, which is uh, which has to do with communicating analysis and communicating analytical concepts. So if anything in this discussion confuses you, uh, we will recap some of the talking points that we've raised, some of the main talking points. But still, if uh, you want, wish to understand this discussion fully in depth uh, and all the talking points that we're going to raise here, or if you're a newer listener who is... Uh, quite new to the way we talk about fights and talk about fighters and evaluate their careers, please go back and, to, and listen to those episodes. Also, I would highly recommend uh, highly recommend the articles that we've released on the fight side over the years, namely the MMA Metagame series by Danny Martin, uh, the Moral Hazard piece written by Hexerized, uh, pieces written by Dan Albert regarding uh, especially pieces on uh, Perto Jan versus... Uh, uh, Jose Aldo and uh, Alex Volkanovsky versus uh, Max Holloway. They have to do w with many of the uh, concepts that we're going to discuss here. Concepts regarding, well, the science and the art of fighting. And finally, I would recommend you read my the third part of my article uh, of my article series entitled uh, "The UFC's Meatpacking Plant." Why start with the third part? Because that's where I actually outline most of my views and uh, most of my knowledge regarding uh, the fundamentals of fighting. So with that out of the way, we can get, uh, I guess we can get started with explaining some of our met methodology very briefly. Uh, uh, well, basically, first of all, we have to get uh, certain biases out of the way. The biases are, we don't quite uh, held, we don't quite hold the same uh, standards that uh, the rest of the MMA fan base holds when it comes to evaluating fighters. We primarily focus on evaluating actual like fighter skill set, 
uh, were based on empirical evidence such as uh, fight footage. And uh, certain <laughs> certain figures in the MMA fandom has uh, have called us footage grinders or like video grinders. I don't know. It was something like it was a, an attempt to come up with a derogatory term for what we do. And I mean, uh, that that's that's that just describes what we actually do. We watch a lot of fights, and we evaluate fighters based on our knowledge of what is deemed functional and fundamentally sound in. Uh, uh, in, well, uh, among co amongst coaching circles, like if you uh, watch instructionals, if you read books uh, written by actual coaches who have coached many fighters and uh, many champions and many like prominent prominent figures in the fighting history, they have they pretty much settle on the same uh, baseline fundamental signs of uh, a skillful fighter. Things like ring craft, defense, proper form. Uh, ability to fight against different matchups, uh, fighting styles, all that, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we don't usually use fight metric, but we do use it in certain context, uh, in certain contexts where it makes sense, uh, as opposed to certain uh, analysts that uh, just grab fight metric and then evaluate those stats in a vacuum and use them as like a, like a surefire source of like like a, a, an infallible source of information because uh, numbers don't lie according to them. And uh, in fact, they do. And we talked about this many times, uh, pretty, and especially on the episodes that I've brought up and uh, in the articles that I've brought up, uh, in that fight metric is not like an all-seeing, all-knowing AI. It's just two guys counting strikes. So naturally, it's uh, it's subject to... Uh, subject to human error, and as such, I, I suppose you can understand why it makes sense that we kind of tend to not rely on it as much when evaluating uh, certain fighters. All right, with that out of the way, we can actually start with our discussion. Uh, Hacks, uh, you're the one who started this all this all this bullshit, <laughs> so you get to start with. Uh, but what we want to discuss here, I guess uh, we need to establish the problem. Tyron Woodley and his legacy. We can, we should uh, contrast Tyron Woodley's career accomplishments, credentials, notable wins, fighting style, attributes, abilities, and skills versus uh, uh, his current state. And uh, like basically, uh, I guess contrast his accomplishments versus his actual level of skill and his fighting style. Take it away, please. Well, I mean, there are there are a bunch of different ways we could do it, but if you just, of all things, we'll probably get mocked for this, but just go and look at Tyron Woodley's Wikipedia page. He wins the title over Robbie Lawler. He re retains or defends the welterweight championship, uh, I think it was at least three times, loses it to Kamaru Usman. So Tyron Woodley had a pretty good run at the welterweight championship. He won some fights. He beat some uh, some guys that were clearly top five. Then he fought Usman, and he lost. He fought Burns, and he lost. He fought Covington, and he lost. And, you know, this is a pretty good intro example of how if you just look at the wins and losses, it doesn't tell the full story. One thing that I think makes Woodley uh, interesting in terms of his career accomplishments, credentials, and so on, and what I'd like to frame it before I pass it to Dan is, 
if you just take a look at Woodley's wins and losses on a Wikipedia page or on a Sherdog page or just a binary win-loss, you don't really get a feeling for how those fights went. Something that I think makes uh, Woodley particularly unique is that perhaps with the exception of the Thompson fights, his defences were very dominant, as was his win to take the title. And Woodley was always, I suppose, the word would be in control. If he lost rounds, it was still being fought in his wheelhouse. And the majority of the fights that he did win or the situations he did win were one-sided and dominant. So Woodley's, uh, if you like, championship wins were a one-sided narrative of dominance. Then he fights Usman Burns and Covington and gets absolutely obliterated. And from what I remember, I may be wrong, he didn't win a single round in any of those fights and pretty much got beaten pillar to post. So I think that's probably a good launching point for even just how do you evaluate the legacy of somebody who won a bunch of fights as champion in incredibly one-sided fashion and then proceeded to get absolutely murdered in one-sided fights with you know very little, if you like, for lack of a better word, decline in between. Uh, Woodley's narrative of wins to losses with the exception of the Thompson fights again which we'll discuss is kind of just this one-sided win big or go home and that's an interesting question to talk about and analyze and you know it makes you ask some hard questions about his accomplishments if you're winning easily until you lose the most obvious answer to that kind of a conundrum is why and uh Dan I know I think you want to talk a little bit about uh some of those specific wins or Woodley's fighting style in general because you've invested a lot of time into it. For some reason. Uh, For some yeah. reason. Yeah, because uh, some, some, someone has to fucking do it and I guess it's me because I'm a masochist. Okay, so I think when asking ourselves kind of what kind of archetype Woodley falls under, I've thought about this quite a bit. I think the best way you could maybe describe Woodley is he's a very reactive kind of fighter. He's mostly, I think, a counterpuncher who's looking to enforce um, a, a game of working behind, like setting you up for shots, basically drawing you in and then landing that big counterpunch. The idea behind Woodley, though, is that the, the whole premise to his game is that he's incredibly built upon um, being reactive to what his opponents uh, do to him. But he's basically trying to draw you into a trap to basically finish you or get control of you. So he's a very kind of reactive sort of fighter. And um, what what also benefits him is that he's a pretty efficient Are you athlete. looking at your phone um, while explaining this whole thing? <laughs> no. Incredibly professional production, this one is. <laughs> My phone's not going off. I don't know. Whose phone is going off then? Hacks. Um, you fucking second time in a row <laughs> trying to ruin this whole recording. <laughs> First with the communicating analysis discussion and now this. It, I, I've been muted. I swear I have been muted. So it's definitely okay, not made for once. Damn. I, I, I really have no idea what okay, you're talking okay, about. Okay. I have no phone by me. Sure. Okay, whatever. whatever. Sure. So, Go ahead. I, ser I seriously don't know. Whatever. Um, Actual serious things, though. So the thing about Woodley is his whole premise is, um, I think, basically trying to draw you in to set things up. 
he's mostly a patient fighter who likes to work at a bit of a slower pace or controlled kind of a pace at a low rate in order to set you up for that big shot or reactive takedown or like turn you against the fence and clinch up. His whole plan is basically mostly a reactive style. So for the most part, this kind of is beneficial for him because he's a very, very powerful athlete. He hits thunderously hard, is incredibly fast. Essen can blitz in and usually is enough to knock people out pretty quickly. So Woodley basically comes into MMA from an all-American wrestling background. I think it's all-American. Yes, I always he is. forget this part. And uh, <clears throat> Got it. And so then uh, he becomes Strikeforce champion um, and then transitions to um, the UFC. He wins some, loses some, but eventually gets his title shot um, and knocks out Robbie Lawler. And then has a couple of title offenses, like Hack said, and then uh, gets completely dominated in one of his later title defenses, and then loses a couple of ones in a row. So once again, the question is: So wait, how does a guy who becomes the default like number one in his weight class suddenly like lose all of these fights in a row? It, that's kind of interesting, and it offers kind of a good case study for a lot of our methodology, trying to explain why this kind of thing happens, because. Um, I think to reiterate, there's often two narratives you'll see behind Woodley. So it's like, um, you, you'll see Woodley kept winning, and that means inherently he's good. But on the other hand, you'll see some people, and this is a narrative sometimes spread by our peers and whatnot. And to be fair, it's kind of our fault for not explaining it well enough. But the idea is, um, uh, if you Woodley isn't really that good, he's very limited, and er ergo pretty bad and kind of got by through just certain situations. So the question, so those are the two narratives that are established. So the question is like, what, what exactly is more true here? And how do you deal with those two questions when you consider the fall off and whatnot? So I think the, the point of this discussion is to kind of try to be objective about this and go like, so here's our methodology. Here's what we've seen with Woodley. Here's, how we find a middle ground to those two narratives and try to offer as much context as we can. And I think, um, I, I think th there's an easy kind of stereotyping narratives problem that sometimes happen. And because these two narratives are reductionistic and they're both ways, I feel, because it's like, how do you once again, win so many fights and then lose so many fights without winning around? That's very interesting, but also he's, just saying Woodley is bad doesn't really tell the full story. So what do you do from I mean, there? yeah, uh, part, part of the reason is, uh, I mean, uh, there's a problem in that, uh, I mean, a lot of us have been doing this for a, for a while now, and I guess it uh, leads to some burnout with regards to how uh, our analysts approach uh, evaluating fighters and talking about fighters. Uh, because when you state the same thing over and over again, uh, you kind of get tired of nailing, like reiterating, reiterating the same points over and over again naturally, and so it leads to some oversimplified statements, such as like just basically just would that basically amount to saying Woodley sucks, and that's the end of it. And I no, I don't want to elaborate. I don't wish to elaborate because I've been talking about this for so long, and no one gets it. Okay, but if you put in the effort once. And then you you have uh, a source 
towards which you can direct people who ask you the same question. And that's, well, pretty much the whole goal of this discussion is to have uh, a reference point which you can direct people to, and then, and, and which uh, hopefully answers most of the questions that those people have. And so, uh, when it comes to evaluating Woodley's skill, you have to first, first you have to internalize certain concepts. You have to internalize certain concepts such as, uh, well, we've all heard the old, ages old adage that, uh, that goes like, uh, styles make fights. And it's true, styles do make fights, but uh, not really to the extent you may think it does, because uh, there are certain, there are different uh, lessons you may learn from someone's career when you evaluate uh, someone's, uh, uh, someone's position and uh, what sort of skills they brought to the table. For example, let's, let's say we take a fighter similar to Woodley. We take a minimalist, and we can describe Woodley as a minimalist, I think we can all agree on that. Uh, you take a minimal, minimalist who bases his entire style around uh, a certain tool. Let's say in this case, because he's similar to Tyrone Woodley, it's his right hand. He's very good at landing that right hand. How does one land a good right hand? Well, if you consult with uh, historical examples from other more well-established sports, for example, boxing. Boxing where they, where they are only allowed to use their hands. Or someone like uh, something like Muay Thai, where they where they deal with a lot of different uh, threats on the feet, and yet still the fighter relies on that one weapon, because uh, he's developed a system based around that one weapon, and he's able to deal with all the threats presented by other Muay Thai fighters. But despite being a minimalist, he still wins consistently. Or in boxing, where fighters possess like uh, you, you, certain all-time greats possess, as they say, every punch in the book. They there are able they are able to fire off offense from with both hands from many different positions, many different stances with every punch in the book, uppercuts, hooks, everything. But this fighter in particular relies solely on the right hand and the ancillary uh, and the additional ancillary skills he developed to land that right hand. Okay. When you evaluate the level of opposition, what do you look for? You look for the ability to defend the right hand. You look for the ability to uh, throw off his opponent, the opponent's reactions regarding the right hand. And uh, it can be fainting, it can be volume, it can be advanced defense, it can be a reliance on the right hand of your own. Like, for example, when you shoulder roll and fire off the right hand off a hair trigger right when the right hand of the opponent comes towards you. Okay, many different ways you can deal with this thing. Tyron Woodley, what's different with him? Uh, if you look back at the career, uh, at his career, and you look back at the fights in which he participated in, and which he won, and which he lost, and compare and contrast them, there are certain lessons you may take away from this. But before we get into it, uh, what we can, what can we learn when you, when we evaluate all those? things that we, I've just outlined, we can learn two things. Either, if a fighter doesn't use the ancillary skills, the ancillary skills to their fullest extent, for example, he doesn't feint, doesn't use the lead hand, uh, doesn't utilize, I don't know, if it's MMA, he doesn't use, utilize, uh, he doesn't utilize level threat exchanges. Oh, level threat mix-ups, I'm sorry. Okay. And yet he still gets wins. 
What does it tell us about the opposition? Either there are two things that can be here. Uh, of course, there could maybe other lessons you can learn, but the two primary ones what, that we usually see, and it can be confirmed if you go back and watch a ton of fights, like with uh, specifically with fighters that I've outlined. I can't give you any examples like off the top of my head, but uh, I guess the the most uh, the most the, the most stark example that comes to my hand right away off the top of my head. Uh, off the cuff is uh, uh, Rocky Marciano, who possessed the famous CZQ and not much else, and yet he still won. Okay, there are two main once again there are two main lessons you can learn from this. Either the level of opposition wasn't really all that advanced, because the fighter doesn't utilize many different things. The fighter doesn't utilize many skillful, uh, smart sort of setups to land the right hand, or the fighter faced a good level of opposition, but it's only a good level of opposition when you take uh, into account that the fighters against which the fighter in question fought were only able to secure wins in a very narrow area of the fight. So basically it was a stylistic layup. What do I mean by this? The fighters, both fighters in question are able to win only in a narrow like area of the fight. They have to narrow down the fight to a certain degree, to a certain... Um, to, once again, to a certain area where they excel, in which they excel. For example, the let's say Habib Nurmagomedov. No doubt, uh, no doubt, an extremely powerful and extremely dominant athlete, one of the greatest lightweights of all time. No disputing that. One of the best ever to do it. But I don't think it would be controversial to say that Habib Nurmagomedov was still a specialist. It's okay to be a specialist, especially if you develop your entire game around certain skills, uh, especially if you develop your game in such a way where you're able to consistently get uh, the fight to the area in which you're comfortable in. Khabib has done that wonderfully. He, he was a splendid grappler, always found his way to victory. He knew what he's good at, knew what he's uh, perhaps bad at, and he specialized around that. He sort of like min-maxed his build and kind of like gamed the overall meta of the division. Because as we know, if you look back and watch uh, the top 10 of that uh, of the lightweight division at the time during uh, the era of Habib's rise, you will find that there's not many uh, high-level wrestlers that Habib had to face in that division. And there weren't any like fighters who base their game around having uh, a very good, very nuanced and powerful takedown defense because there just weren't many fighters uh, who possessed quite the style that Habib brought to the table. Okay, how does that, how does all that translate to Tyron Woodley? How can we compare, contrast and compare all that stuff with Tyron Woodley? Who would like to answer that question? I, uh, I'd like to also add an extra comment there. So w with any kind of career assessment or any kind of concept discussion in general, one of the things we've talked about a lot in analysis pause before is that context is really, really important to consider. So we, we were talking about Khabib a second ago, and I, I don't think anyone of us three or on our site will disagree that Khabib is one of the most accomplished and most skilled mixed martial artists Definitely, we've ever seen. Yeah. And, but 
but the fact remains is that he also didn't necessarily fight anyone who really, really took him out of his comfort zone enough, uh, and we didn't really get to see certain things um, from him. Um, but him being dominant still means something. Him getting the wins he did still means something. And so, though him not fighting certain opponents or not facing certain matchups doesn't necessarily diminish his legacy at all, but it does leave some lingering questions, if that makes sense. So with any kind of fighter, um, with, with any kind of discussion over any fighter, one of the most important questions to ask is, okay, so well, in, in any kind of discussion, and what kind of opponents did they fight? And when they fought them, how much did the opponent take them out of their comfort zone? And what kind of things did you see from that other fighter to see them respond? So it's like, hey, if you watched boxing, you saw Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez get into this absolute insane war with um Sorung Visai back in 2017. And Chocolatito was really, really based around his ability to be able to come forward and put pressure on him. But Sorung Visai could match him in exchanges and was also more physical than him. So how did Chocolatito have to handle those new questions? And, well, he had to control his positioning on the inside a lot more, had to pitch and catch, had to be able to time his footwork and work the body a lot more. And in, in those situations, um, it's really, really important to ask yourselves, so how do these fighters get tested and how do they answer these questions that are posed their way? And so with Woodley, the discussion is always, uh, at least in this situation, because Woodley's a good context, so oh, we, we've established what Woodley kind of does, like what his bread and butter game is. And the question is, so what hap are there examples where Woodley is taken out of his comfort zone, and how does he deal with those? Because in MMA, the best fighters are often revealed by their ability to overcome adversity, or those difficult situations. And the question kind of is, when did Woodley exactly encounter those situations, and how did he respond to those situations when they happened? And that's that's a good chance to go over Woodley's career or and whatnot. Um, I, I, and there's a good fight to talk that over, but I'm I can talk about it in a minute. Um, does anyone have any? statements before i mean I do yeah so. <clears throat> one one small thing i have to point out right away before we get into th discussing the fighting question uh when when you look back at uh, other more well-established sports such as once again boxing or muay thai or kickboxing uh one thing that immediately uh sprungs out uh one thing that immediately springs out at you is that uh the areas of comfort may be very subtle and it's not as pronounced as it in MMA, where in MMA, uh, when we, we talked about facing different types of opposition, different stylistic matchups and uh, difficult stylistic matchups, overcoming adversity and all, all that stuff, in MMA, it can be as pronounced as a fighter not facing any grapplers whatsoever during the course of their careers, and then suddenly running into a very high-level wrestler who is able to take you down, and who is also a very good grappler on top. And that's kind of like the whole situation with Khabib Nurmagomedov. Once again, not diminishing his accomplishments, but there certainly is still some lingering questions, as Dan had pointed out, in that how would he deal with someone who is equally as physical, equally as powerful in wrestling and grappling? 
and isn't able to take his opponent down and then tee off on them as he tends to do when he's got his opponent down. Okay. But with Tyron Woodley, it's not quite the case of him facing a position uh, where that, that far outclasses him in a certain area of skill. It's not really that. It didn't really face anyone who's like that dominant in uh, in like in a very particular singular area. If anything, he usually faces a position that is that is like at the very least at athletic parity with him, or even less uh, than Tyron Woodley is, because Tyron Woodley is an incredibly, or at least was an incredibly athletic fighter, and that's why he was able to have the success that he's had. One of the reasons why. Because, as I've pointed out in the beginning, Tyron Woodley doesn't really do any of the things that a high-level specialist does, or, or a high-level minimalist does. He just has... Uh, he was incredibly fast in his prime. And then suddenly he starts facing these uh, opponents that do not necessarily vastly outclass him, either athletically or skill-wise, skill, uh, or skill and yet he still loses those fights. And right now we're going to get into it, uh, get into the nuts and bolts, the nitty-gritty technical stuff for why that happened. Okay, gentlemen, take it away. Dan? Oh, Hacks? I think I think one point that I would make is um, to maybe compare the one last point of comparison with the Habib and uh, Woodley response. I think something that a lot of people forget is that, you know, it's not just how good you are as a fighter. It is also the consequence of the divisional meta in which you operate. Now, I think no matter how big of a fan you are, I'll use a comparison of Robert Whittaker and Israel Adesanya. From what we've seen of Israel Adesanya, he is nowhere near as well equipped as Whittaker is to handle strikers who can wrestle, who can mix those two threats together. So uh, I think a really good example of that is how uh, Adesanya handled the Yan fight. Adesanya is not as comfortable operating against a wrestler who can use wrestling threats to get into the pocket, whereas we saw Whitaker spend a pretty significant amount of his uptick on his career fighting people like Romero when he was threatening wrestling, fighting Jack Ray. So in some senses, um, Israel Adesanya has, based on the evidence we've seen in the end fight, has been able to succeed in part because he's not fighting as diverse a wrestling division as the division that Whitaker sprung up in. That doesn't mean that Israel Adesanya's wins are any less impressive. It also doesn't mean that, you know, uh, Whitaker is, in quotes, a better fighter than Adesanya, or in quotes, Adesanya is a better fighter than Whitaker. It means that the two of them fought in different contexts, fought different fighters, and because they had different skill sets were able to offer different results in different fights or again using the comparison of something like Yan versus uh, Romero we got different fights out of it you know Whitaker's fights with uh, Romero are obviously of a very different type and a very different strategy and a very different even if they were of a similar outcome to Adesanya's fights with Romero so to take that back to um, the, Hab the Habib and uh, Woodley comparison as has been noted Habib were never really fought somebody who was exceptionally comfortable in a grinding attritional battle where the mentality was don't ever let Habib push you to the fence. That doesn't diminish any of Habib's accomplishments. It leaves us with unanswered questions. So when we move to Woodley, because Woodley kept on fighting for a much longer period of time, both in terms of the number of fights he fought and in terms of the time for which he fought those fights, 
uh, at the top of his division, we kind of got to see Woodley start fighting people who, as we'll discuss in this um, in this podcast, presented difficult stylistic challenges uh, for him. And Woodley, for lack of a better word, completely failed to meet those challenges. And I think that's probably an important point to establish to kind of go into the next narrative, which I believe is going to be about why... You know, there's this idea that if you win a lot, that means you're a good fighter. And if you're a good fighter, that means the processes you use are good. And that means they're above question, which is a dangerous approach analytically and statistically. So if either of you want to lead into that, please go ahead. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Once again, uh, as we outlined in the beginning, uh, there is a, a very strong association with championship being indicative of, of a level of skill and from uh when you zoom out and the broader scope of things yes that makes sense uh and it should make sense it should be the case the champion should be the best fighter in the division bar none but as we talked as we've outlined in the all this stylistic matchup talk there this can be that that can be like there may be situations in which it's not really the case. It can be, as as always, uh, I think as the as the meme song goes, it's like uh, like fifty percent hard work, like thirty percent skill, and the rest of it is luck. So it's like whatever. I, I don't remember the. <laughs> it, it it was a song that circulated around everyone's uh, Nokia or Motorola phones, and uh, everyone transferred it just with the. Uh, the IK ports and all that stuff. Anyway, uh, I think we've taken taken up enough time to start to make Dan start fuming there. Dan, you wanted to get into this whole thing. Uh, you wanted to discuss absolutely the actual fight. Okay, so so he so here's the thing. Uh, we've already talked about like um, the whole like hey, so this is this is the fight where a guy is posed questions and. Where ex- and he loses decisively. Um, what what exactly happens in that fight and why it happened? So we look at Woodley's career and we go, okay. So before his championship reign, what's a fight that happens where he basically is beaten decisively? Oh, hey, there's that Rory McDonald fight. So what happened there? So a couple of things did happen. So let's start with this. So. Woodley is always kind of that reactive sort of fighter. He's kind of planting his feet, looking to wrestle or set up that overhand. So the one thing about Woodley is Woodley wants to draw you in, and his idea is to back himself up and draw you into that right hand off of a blitz. So what Rory does is Rory basically understands, okay, I have to mix him up here, or I have to mix up a jab, I have to work level changes and kicks. And basically, the whole thing is Rory mixes these whole things up consistently to force Woodley consistently onto the fence, but also to give Woodley as little space as possible. So the thing is also Rory never commits to stepping in. He's always working on the outside right out of Woodley's range. And so when Woodley tries to boost like a blitz out, um, Rory is able to take a step back and hide behind that lead shoulder. Or if he tries to clench up, Rory can kind of separate. But the thing is, Rory is always mixing things up specifically, and this is key here, because Woodley, for all intents and purposes, is pretty attentive to what his opponent is doing to try to set up that overhand. And, right, 
or to set up that takedown. So the whole idea is Rory is reading his whole movement and, and constantly keeping him guessing, because if Woodley's going to be reactive, dealing with a counterpuncher, the best way to deal with him is to keep him thinking. And so the more you make him think, the less he's able to do things. So Rory will throw a jab out. Oh, he's fainting, and suddenly he throws another one-two into a body kick. He fakes a jab and then actually does jab. He'll start mixing it up to the body. Oh, one-two into a body kick, and then resets again. But the other thing is he always draws Woodley's attention to something else and never lets him, like, take a mental break. He's always planted. He's always hand-fighting, drawing Woodley's attention. And then as soon as Woodley's focused on the hand fight, Rory will break it and then attack more. And so the idea is if Woodley's reactive, then the whole idea is to never let him be proactive at all. I'll always take the initiative and keep him overthinking or thinking about what's happening and so that he can't build any momentum or any of his reads because he's too focused on what's happening to him. And so... That that's the big thing about how Rory beat him, ultimately setting up these mix-ups and also creating expectations and just unpredictability through constant attacks. Because it's not like you can simply just go after Woodley and like win instantly, because it's like, hey, Kelvin Gastelum and Carlos Condit went after him pretty relentlessly, and they got fucking clocked and didn't die because they were basically immortal. But it's like you can't just run over Woodley. You have to who basically do a bunch of things differently. And the Rory fight is like the finest like textbook example of here's a really dangerous guy. Here's how you ought to approach him in order to deal with it. So the question with the Rory fight is we we see all these things that happened. And so the question is, do these things happen again once we get to his title reign? Like, do who asks these same questions? How do they try to address these same things? And when he loses, does he have any answers to these sorts of things? The Rory fight may well be the most important piece of this fight right, study in, in order to kind of answer these questions. And it's kind of like the good place to start with as far as Woodley goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, the, uh, the Rory McDonald fight really like sort of uh, has uh, has laid the groundwork for how someone can uh, beat Tyron Woodley. Uh, and uh, another good example is uh, uh, there's actually an article written by the Fight Side staff. Uh, it's entitled How Gilbert Burns Dominated Tyron Woodley. It's uh, a bit at the tail end of his career, right after the Kamaru Usman beating. And uh, in it... Uh, I mean, everyone had really good insight to offer in this uh, in in that article, so I highly recommend the listener check it out. But in the beginning, Ryan Wagner uh, outlines that um, uh, he basically said that at this point the book is out on beating Woodley as an orthodox fighter. If you're an orthodox fighter, you have to follow him to the end of his range as he backs himself up, stay safe behind your lead shoulder, and use active feints to do his counter right hand and facilitate your entries. So basically, you take the initiative, you never let up the initiative, and you keep fainting to make Tyron Woodley think. That's exactly what Rory McDonald did. And however, Tyron Woodley is still dangerous. He's still very fast. He still punches like a truck. 
And so, as a result, it takes a high level of discipline, craft, and poise to maintain that game for 25 minutes or however many minutes without giving him an opening. And uh, in the fights that we discussed, both Gilbert Burns and uh, Rory McDonald has done that splendidly. They were able to beat Tyron Woodley using uh, that specific game plan. Okay. And so, first of all, we, we, we talked about how you can beat Tyron Woodley. But how does Tyron Woodley win, first of all? Do we have any very illustrative examples that outline and uh, showcase how Tyron Woodley is able to win despite having such a minimalist game? Does anyone have uh, an example off the top of their head? Um, I, I, ha I have a few things. So I already talked about this earlier, but the whole thing is... um. So I, I watched uh, Tyron Woodley's fight with Kelvin Gastelum. And the thing you have to understand about Gastelum is Gastelum is pretty reliant upon his physical attributes and, well, being immortal. But the thing about Gastelum is he's pretty predictable with, like, his entries. The whole idea is he wants to charge in really fast behind the one, too. He can sometimes cut you off, but he's really reliant upon his speed more than anything else. So Woodley basically realizes, this guy's going to come in straight on me. So all I have to do is basically just take some hops, and as soon as he steps in, I crack him really, really hard and then reset. And the whole, the other thing Woodley does is, against another aggressive opponent, Condit, he basically realized Condit compromises his stance a lot, I can kick him a bit. So the thing about Woodley is, although Woodley is um, doesn't do a lot, he is observant in some regards. And so that does extend to even some of, the losses with the Rory fight because he does try things and I can talk about this more in depth later. But, um, the other thing is you see Woodley at the very least get like the basic principles of, I have to try things, but, but there's kind of a problem and I, I I'm skipping ahead a bit, but the thing about Woodley is that he can do things. He just can't exactly pair things well in a cohesive way that allows him to get out of pretty difficult situations like the Rory fight. So uh, other issues um, that Woodley does deal with against opponents that are sorry that he exploits. Um, so Lawler, for instance, is one of his more impressive wins. And although there's a caveat that, hey, Robbie Lawler came off like insane, like a two year spree of like insane wars. Um, Woodley still had their idea. Lawler is a bit of a slow starter. Lawler likes to take his time and get his reads early. He Plus, he's very reliant upon his explosive bursts. So Woodley basically chooses to go forward and quickly like put his level changes. And because Lawler isn't exactly pressing any initiative, he quickly gets cracked and, well, gets knocked out. And Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, an interesting uh, outlier for Tyron Woodley's career, isn't it? Uh, when you look back at Tyron Woodley's career, what you usually see is that, once again, he's reactive. He doesn't really take initiative. And whatever initiative that he maintains is uh, predicated on the threat that he may crack you at any moment now. And uh, you can call it a an energy uh, an energy conserving style. You, it's uh, from for why did he develop this style? We don't really know. We can guess, 
we can make educated educated guesses based on examples from other historical fighters in that for example tyron woodley may be concerned about his gas tank and in certain performances where he essentially blanketed his opponent where the wins by unanimous decisions uh, against um, certain opponents earlier in his career where he didn't really do much on top he didn't try to expand energy by trying to pass aggressively or by trying to fire off devastating ground uh, grounded bounds, even though he could. We certainly know that he's uh, an extremely powerful man. An extremely powerful man, but he still didn't really do it. And uh, an interesting contrast uh, would be between his uh, win against Robbie Lawler and his loss against Vicente Luque at the tail end of his career. It was his last fight in the UFC. Why did uh, his approach against Robbie Lola work, and why it didn't work against Vicente Luque? Do you have any ideas? Anyone has uh, any explanations for why this happened off the top of their head? Or maybe perhaps they've thought about this for very long and studied that fight? Hex, you haven't spoken for a long time. How would you explain that contrast between those two performances? Honestly, I think part of it is definitely that Woodley came into the the Luke fight fighting very much out of his comfort zone. You know, he adopted an approach that was measuredly well, measuredly more aggressive. I think when you try and jump from uh, an aggressive approach, sorry, from a conservative counterpunching approach to an aggressive in your face, I want to take a fight here and now approach. You know, that is a big jump for somebody that's a little bit older and a little bit out of their prime to take. I think another part of it is that it is a substantial deviation from Tyron Woodley's usual process. As Dan has said, uh, Woodley likes to use the threat of his wrestling and his right hand to be reactive and counter. I think a third point is that Luke is a much more proven, battle-tested and comfortable fighter in the pocket. He's had some pretty nasty pocket wars, even if he is hittable. I, I guess I would frame it all as ultimately it was a departure from uh, Woodley's process. And maybe that's kind of where I want to take the next part. Um, what we've all kind of focused on when we talk about Woodley is that Woodley has a process, and that is to try and get people to come in and get get hit by the, the right hand and, and fall over and die because Woodley hits like a truck. And I think it's important to recognize that this is a Woodley process um, for two reasons. Firstly, because if we don't talk about the process, our statistical analysis, if we choose to use statistical analysis, is often blind. Secondly, by identifying Woodley's process, we can identify the ways to disrupt that process. So I'll kind of go over those two points briefly. So with the Woodley process, a point that's been made and a point that's made in the Burns article uh, by Ryan Wagner is that solving Woodley has been a much simpler and more easy um, problem to solve if you are an orthodox fighter. And a large part of that is the punching mechanics of Woodley trying to hit orthodox fighters. And to kind of boil down Ryan's insights and the points that Dan made about the Rory fight, to beat Woodley you need to stick some some kind of safe lead in his face. So a jab, kicks, you need to keep him working to deaden his trigger finger for the right hand. And if you can mix in some kind of threat, so I have a two-level or a two-range threat, so perhaps you jab him up and then you go for a takedown, or you you know jab him up and you kick, or you threaten takedowns and you go for kicks. Any combination of those three variables worked extremely well for Rory in the fight. So I think that's the first point. 
that uh, you know you can you can solve the Tyron Woodley process by offering specific threats. And as we go through the fights where Tyron Woodley got absolutely smashed, and also the fights where he found success, we'll be coming back to that idea of the Woodley process and how to disrupt it. The second point I want to make is about the statistical point. So I've seen many people attempting to uh, explain Tyron Woodley's successes in his fights where he won in statistical terms. And I've noted that they will pick statistics like against Tyron Woodley, many fighters just throw a low number of strikes, presumably because they're afraid of his right hand. Or against Tyron Woodley, um, they have a very low uh, takedown success rate. And to me, these feel like statistics that do not come from an analysis of Tyron's process or matchup or where he's strong or where he's weak. These are statistics that come from he won, so therefore the statistics that look good for Tyron Woodley are the statistics that matter. I think a really good example of that is his takedown defense. Woodley obviously had a very, very high success rate in his takedown defense against Demi and Maya because Maya didn't have a striking threat and really could only win off one condition. Um, which is obviously getting takedowns in Woodley, but if we compare that to the success that Usman or Rory had against Tyrone Woodley, we can see his takedown defense stat starts to crater a little bit. So just to kind of give a, an example outside of uh, MMA of why the statistical cherry picking can be dangerous, you know, it's kind of like if you were comparing to um, two groups of students, right? And one group of students is in a poor area of Baltimore and another one is in a wealthy area of <laughs> upper New York City. And you see that the the wealthy the wealthy students have um have do, you know, an average of, I don't know, thirty hours of homework a week and the poor Baltimore students don't do any homework at all. And you go on that and you go, that's why they're successful. That's the reason. Clearly this is the biggest area of difference. But what you're really doing in this instance is you're not going Here's some homework. Here's a difference in the amount of homework they do. That must be, is that significant? How do I test it? How do I, how do I evaluate it? How do I control for that statistical importance? How do I model this? Why do I even think this in the first place? What you're really doing is you're saying test results from wealthy New York students good, test results from Baltimore poor students bad. The New York students must be doing something right. So you go looking for something. That explains that and that is a terrible way to do statistical analysis so to reflect that back on Woodley I saw many of the statistical narratives of why Tyron Woodley was good were oh he has a really high takedown defense in the point of his career where he was winning where there was I in my opinion particularly using the Rory example some decent process and tape based evidence for well, he hasn't been challenged in ways that we know based off a loss to Rory, he's weak. You know, it was kind of cherry-picking statistics. So I wanted to bring that up and draw some attention to it because that's going to be very re relevant as we now move on to a more fight-by-fight -fight breakdown of how people took apart Tyron Woodley or if he was successful, how so was he to successful? to very quickly summarize your points. <clears throat> so uh, the initial question was comparing and contrasting the win against Robbie Lawler versus the loss versus Vicente Luque. There are several things, several obvious things that we have to point out. The first one you pointed out is the uh, the open stance versus closed stance matchup, uh, by which I mean Robert Lawler was standing southpaw and Vicente Luque was orthodox. And also Robert Lawler is a slow starter versus Vicente Luque, who is able to crack you right off the gate. Right out of the gate, he is able to just get into a bar brawl, essentially, from the first round, from the opening bell. And... And obviously, 
uh, Tyron Woodley has under, has uh, experienced multiple crushing, extremely demoralizing losses in a row. And so going and uh, versus contrasting that versus his performance against, Rob, against Robbie Lawler, in which he was uh, fighting for the UFC belt. So essentially, you could say that, I mean, you can't exactly quantify it, but I think it makes sense to say that in this situation, and based on the other historical examples uh, throughout combat sports history, Tyron Woodley has risen to the occasion. He was... Uh, he cared very much about becoming the champion, and so he picked the right approach and he was able to secure the belt in a very dominant fashion. Okay, he prepared for a, the most important fight of his career, and versus Vicente Luque, contrasting that versus his performance against Robbie Lawler, he was coming off multiple losses in which he hasn't won a single round. And when he attempted to go out uh, to venture out of his comfort zone once again, for the second time essentially in his career, it was an entirely different matter against an entirely different opponent. Uh, perhaps not as fundamentally as uh, it may seem, but still, it was a different opponent and it, uh, that possessed different attributes and a different fighting style. And it was a different time in Tyron Woodley's career. Okay, that explains all that. And second, uh, to, to perhaps to just cl clarify, about uh, when you talk about cherry-picking statistics... You're essentially talking about data dredging, don't you? That's pretty much what you're talk talking about. Like, uh, uh, I'm currently looking at a Wikipedia page, <laughs> and uh, there's uh, a very extreme but very illustrative example where there's uh, like a graph that shows correlation between the number of letters in the script's National Spelling Bee's winning word and the number of people in the United States killed by venomous spiders, and it shows correlation because the statistics were cherry-picked, essentially. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, there's definitely an element of cherry-picking statistics. I think another part of it is just, as I said, there's also the time frame with which you pick statistics. I think there's a real danger when you go hunting for statistical analysis in something in mixed martial arts. So we've obviously said this before. Mixed martial arts has a very small sample size. Um, the number of fights that fighters get into, you know, is never like there's no fighter in the history of the UFC I can think of that's had 40 fights. There's maybe one or two that have had 30 fights. There's very a small number that have had 20. And even if you consider that maybe you've had 30 fights in the UFC, how many of those have been against top 10 people in your division fighting for divisional mm. relevance? So, you know, the, the small sample size in itself means that you run into a lot of issues. You'd have to go by minute by minute or round by round. But, you know, obviously if you go minute by minute, then you're, you're, you're kind of um, inherently building in a bias against fighters that may not want to operate, you know, at a high volume for minute by minute. There's a lot of different things, but the short version is I think it's a combination of cherry picking statistics, you know, looking for stuff that's significant. But I also think it's a combination of people were looking to try and explain Woodley in statistical terms as fast as they possibly could when his career wasn't over yet and they weren't, you know, they were like, oh, he's winning now. He must be different. The, the Rory fight in particular was kind of overlooked. So, yeah, just um, jumping yeah, the gun a little bit. We talked about this component. before on some of the previous episodes, oh. but beyond the significance chasing, uh, uh, like endemic and uh, the statistical discourse in MMA, there's also the problem of the, of, uh, the very statistics themselves being uh, unreliable. Uh, I've pointed this out m before many times, and I've, I've said this in the beginning, but uh, fight metric is just two guys pushing buttons, and the way they count strikes is also very, um, like, 
perhaps strange because uh, you have the uh, metric of significant strikes landed and uh, you would be uh, and there's total strikes and there's significant strikes and naturally it would make sense for you to believe that oh Total strikes is just the strikes that landed, and significant strikes are the power shots that land that have landed. It's kind of like the difference between jabs and power shots in boxing. But no, that's not the case. Total strikes is just basically all the strikes that have landed on the ground, and significant strikes are all the strikes that have landed on the feet. That's weird. All right. So we're counting jabs as significant strikes. Okay, a jab can be a significant strike if you, especially if you cut someone up, for example. And uh, it leads to them eating more power shots. But that's kind of a little bit more involved than the usual fight metrics that uh, stats uh, count shows us. And, uh, for example, and if... and also, very quickly, uh, to get this one uh, out of the way, uh, there's also a problem of... Uh, I've talked about this on the previous episodes uh, about communicating analysis. Sometimes certain significant strikes that are counted are not really strikes at all. Sometimes, like, for example, the leg kicks that have been checked are counted as significant strikes that have landed. But, like, that that doesn't really make any sense now, does it? Okay, uh, the, <laughs> with that out of the way, you may proceed then, please. Sorry about that. So, yeah, I, I have an, another thing to add to that. It's like, so during Tyrone Woodley's title reign, you'll, you'll hear a statistic that he had 100% takedown defense. But if you watch the Rory fight... He got taken down in the third round, so it's like, where the hell did that come from? And it's like, th that's the thing, too, because it's like, if you watch fights like uh, Lawler Condit, for instance, like, although there there's the whole statistic, oh, hey, Condit really outlanded him, if you pay very, very close attention to what does and what doesn't land, it, it's, Condit doesn't land as much as he does, and R Robbie kind of lands more than he does, but it's also that fight's also just weird in terms of kind of the dynamic in general. But it's like the the whole thing with Woodley, I, I think that's really, really important to establish is that Woodley is a fine example of kind of the idea of if you're fighting at kind of a minimalist pace or a slow pace inherently, you kind of represent an, a very, very intelligent fighter, someone who's very tactical, kind of a thinkery kind of fighter, you know, um, and the thing about minimalism and hacks and Tuman, feel free to add to this because it's a bit of a complicated topic. The thing about minimalism itself is that it's not like a cut and dry topic of like, hey, you don't really do a lot. Um, and that inherently makes you a very intelligent fighter. You may be not really doing a lot because you're trying to compensate for certain things like gas tank. You may just feel more comfortable operating at that kind of pace. There's also the issue of um, basically how much skill sets or like certain ancillary tools are you really using? And so if you watch Woodley quite a bit, the biggest thing that really, really has always stuck out to me about him is um, just how reliant he is on using that overhand right and how he sets it up. Because there aren't really too many ways he pairs it with other things to set up. Like, you'll see him do different things. Like, you'll see him jab, you'll see him leg kick, but some of those kind of seem often whimsical. It's like, well, I'll just kick you now. But then you won't really see him pair stuff. Like, you won't see him faint a jab into a kick. You won't really see him, like, fake the right into a jab. You'll see him touch a lot, 
in order to set up a right, but you won't really see him like commit to things. So because of that, that whole minimalist approach doesn't really lend itself well to like operating severe threats in order to make your game really work. And that's kind of the difference between him and say like other minimalist fighters. Like a, if you've, once again, I'm going to use a boxing example. If you've seen a boxer named Guillermo Rigondeau, Rigondeau fights at an exceptionally slow pace, but Rigondeau himself is all about like controlling things with his positioning, using his jab to draw you in to counters and has enough power to make you back off. But he's always doing things to trivialize your kind of offense. And although it's not exactly the funnest fight to watch, him trivializing Nonito Donaire for about 12 rounds is one of the most insane performances of the last decade and is a perfect example of like how you have a minimalist game that really is complete with all the things you do. And so once again, the question is, so Woodley is a minimalist kind of, or at least strives to be kind of that kind of guy. So during his title reign, and before those losses, did he really have anyone who kind of brought those kinds of answers or questions that maybe the Rory fight did? Like, how much did he really improve, or did he kind of just have matchups where he wasn't really brought into the same questions? So to look through them fight by fight, we kind of, we start with, well, Lawler. Lawler himself, we've already covered, basically, but not really. Lawler basically kind of let him have the initiative and got knocked out. So then he fights Wonder Boy, and the Wonder Boy fights are weird, and they're kind of complicated because of how they stylistically match up with each other. Um, namely, like, both guys kind of prefer to, like, draw the other guy in, but in different ways. Wonder Boy kind of likes to chase to set up angles. Woodley kind of likes to draw you in into linear pathways. But it ends up being one of those weird stylistic matchups where both guys kind of cancel each other out, where because Woodley has his back against the fence... I'm trying to summarize this as fast as I can because it's kind of complicated. Basically, because Woodley has his back against the fence, Thompson can't really create those angles. And because Thompson stands in an incredibly bladed stance, he can't really operate behind like the same kind of mix-ups Rory could. With Plus, Thompson's not really a wrestling threat the way Rory was. So Thompson kind of has to work behind kind of awkward like front kicks and basically jabs and basically wait on... Woodley, and it becomes the most bullshit chicken game of fighting you'll ever see because basically Woodley has the athletic advantages and him putting himself against the fence ironically completely like neutralizes a lot of Thompson's abilities but Woodley can't really do a whole lot against Thompson either because Thompson has enough of like um kind of distance measurement to get out of dodge. He essentially has enough defensive acumen to make the right hand, the threat of the right hand trivial. And like, uh, because uh, you talked about how the the two cancel each other out, despite having similar styles. And uh, the the main difference is that, the primary difference is that uh, Wonderboy operates best when he gets the opponent uh, headhunting and chasing him while he's able to sort of like utilize his ring craft to to set up advantageous angles off the back foot. Meanwhile, he's not as good on the lead. For example, in the fight against Vicente Luque, he demolished Vicente Luque on the back foot, but the mere moment when he had Vicente Luque trapped along the fence and able to, well, well, conventional logic would say that he's able, that he has uh, uh, Vicente Luque in his sights now and he can finish him, but no. That's exactly the area of success 
where that's the area in which Vicente Luque had the most success fighting against uh, Wonderboy. That's where he connected with his uh, famous left hook. Yeah, it's um, the, the other problem is that um, Wonderboy himself is um, he he tr- in terms of like asking the same questions Rory did. Like I said, bladed stance, how Wonderboy creates angles on his offense versus Woodley style, they couldn't really establish the same things. The other problem is that you see Wonderboy kind of have a general idea of like, oh, okay, so this is how you work. You blitz in. You basically are trying to draw me into the right hand. Well, because I don't necessarily have the same skill sets, I kind of have to wait on you a bit. So you see Wonderboy kind of have the right ideas versus Woodley. He just ha- doesn't have all the tools to really execute upon the same things that, say, like Rory McDonald did. And so as a result, you get two pretty close fights, although technically Woodley probably should have won the first one. But it ends up being an inc- incredibly, like... Weird games of chicken between these two, in especially in the second fight, and then Woodley lands like the only left hook he's like ever thrown, and Thompson's like, "What the fuck did you just do?" and is badly hurt. It's pretty amusing, but it's like, it, I I think those fights are pretty demonstrative, kind of of um another point worth making. Part of the reason why statistics in MMA are so difficult to really l- rely upon is because MMA is an inherently really, really fluid, diverse kind of sport where you see so many difficult, like, uh, stylistic matchups, different stylistic matchups, sorry, in, like, a wide variety of styles. It's kind of like you can see, like, guys apply, like, different skill sets. And that's why, like, if you're looking at kind of ceilings in terms of meta, you can, like, go in entirely different directions, like an Aldo, like a DJ, like a GSP, and see how each one can kind of be effective but it's also like also why specialists like Khabib are so successful and whatnot and it it just makes kind of the whole thing with statistics itself inherently kind of difficult to kind of gauge as a reliable source and and that's um that I'm segueing a bit but once again it's like that's why it's incredibly important to like kind of have a close reading eye for this kind of thing so it's like Wonderboy couldn't answer those questions. Hax has already talked about Maya. Maya's problem is basically that Maya's whole game is predicated upon his wrestling. So all Woodley had to do is basically wait for his him to shoot, hoot, and then like time him. And like the first uppercut he throws basically pacifies Maya for the rest of the fight. But what's funny about the fight is Woodley doesn't really push for the finish and then otherwise has the worst like Holloway swagger taunting I've ever seen ever. But the the thing is maya doesn't answer those questions either uh till is um till is the next opponent and you kind of see a more aggressive woodley but it kind of makes sense because you don't really see till pushing like any initiative the same way lawler did and so the moment then like till pushes the initiative he gets cracked and then gets flattened on the ground and so it's like how many did these opponents really ask the same questions rory did in wonder boy's case kind of but not really like the same like approaches or ideas and that's kind of the reason why like um although there's kind of a narrative back when Woodley was champion that hey this guy is basically slowly approaching GSP level legacy why during the times a lot of people were kind of skeptical about that yeah there's also the problem of uh Tyron Woodley's uh, like 
Tyron Woodley's right hand is like a, both like kind of a blessing and a curse for him in that, like sure, he he can clock you, but when he clocks you, he doesn't really, uh, like bank on that, on that moment. He doesn't really capitalize on that huge moment of success. Like he capitalized a couple of times. He capitalized in the Darren Till fight, which was also an outlier, kind of like the Robbie Lawler fight. But uh, he doesn't necessarily possess the finishing instinct that would uh, lead to the right hand being even more potent than it than it uh, already is. And uh, its its potency is also kind of curtailed by his uh, uh, like lack of desire to maintain initiative or press his advantages or essentially initiate exchanges. Uh, like uh, you talked about uh, the Jackal, uh, Guillermo Rigendell, uh, who is a low-volume fighter but nonetheless is able to dominate other fighters and make them look silly with his uh, skill set. Another example I would like to bring up is it's someone you actually wrote about as well. It's, uh, it's uh, Vicente Saldivar. He talked about him being very low volume, who is nonetheless able to explode the mere moment he has an opening. What would you say about that? How would you compare and contrast them, then? So, Saudi Avar's whole shtick, and he's a little difficult to get. So, Saudi Avar, if you watch footage of him, like, you... His whole thing is subtle kind of feints. And whether or not you notice him is kind of... Um, it depends what happens, because I said this in the article... It's very subtle upper body feints. So maybe you don't see it. Well, then the moment he breaks rhythm and suddenly unleashes combinations from hell, it's like, holy shit, he can do that? Okay, so when exactly is the trigger for him to do that? But then maybe you do see the feint, and it's like, oh, okay, maybe I'm thinking now. But the whole thing with Saudi Avar is he's always like actively working behind a jab, repositioning, constantly applying those feints, level changes. But he also backs them up by committing to body shots, especially. And that always like that that's the thing. If you're going to have a threat, especially a high fainting game, or a, you have to have threats to kind of back it up, and not just simply one threat, i.e. counter punching, but like actually committed threats. And often the best fighters you'll see will capitalize upon those threats, but also build upon those threats. And that's kind of the thing someone like Saudi of our does. And so the question with Woodley is, what kind of things does Woodley do to, like, act as ancillary threats for his right, right? and does he capitalize on them? And I think we, it's pretty safe to say that he doesn't. <laughs> now, at this point in his career. <laughs> to, um, to kind of take all that back and point that back to the to the if you like disrupting the woodley process right like i kind of summarized it as three things you need to have a safe lead that you continually push in woodley's face you need to you know deaden his trigger finger trigger finger with constant fainting and you need to have some kind of multi-layered threat and if you look at in my opinion what are woodley's two most dominant and exciting and probably most impressive wins so the win of robbie lawler and the win of darren till let's actually sit down and let's for a moment think about how those three simple ways to beat the hell out of woodley which we will hopefully discuss in a little bit more detail looking at the burns fight and the usman fight and so on how they break down so number one you need to be active well as we've already discussed, Till, while he does feints, is not a particularly high output fighter. And he was especially low output when it came to the Woodley fight. He almost seemed afraid to throw right off the bat. 
as we've also shown, uh, sorry, as we've also kind of found out until his later career, even against uh, fighters who do not possess the athletic abilities of Woodley or the counter threat of Woodley, Till still seems quite intimidated to throw. So giving credit to Woodley for that to me seems to be a little bit uh, dishonest based on later studies of Darren Till. And if we look at Lawler, Lawler is known for not being super high output. So and so I think in and Lawler in particular thrives in exchanges and has a preference for exchanges. So if we kind of look at both of those guys, I think it's probably fair to say that they did not present the safe lead or the willingness to be super high output in Woodley's face the same way that a Newsman did or a Rory did or a Burns did or even a Covington did. And secondly, since I've just mentioned Covington, again, as fantastic as fighter a fighter as Lawler is and as good of a fighter as Darren Till is, they're not exactly multi-layered threats. I would not describe Lawler as a particularly dexterous or intimidating wrestler or kicker and Darren Till even less so. However, while many people are not a particular big fan of certain ways in which Colby Covington strikes, as an example. I don't think anyone can deny the fact that Colby Covington offers a much more multi-dimensional threat in the sense that he can take you down, he can wear on you in the clinch, he can strike, and he can have, you know, success against top five welterweights in terms of chaining all of these things together. And obviously, you know, Gilbert Burns with his, um, you know, as, as, as Fenno has pointed out, his quite um, ugly but effective kicking, or Rory, who kind of beat Woodley up in all three phases of wrestling, you know, striking with the feet and hands, and obviously Usman, you know, kind of da- a big brothered or daddied Woodley in the clinch. These guys, I think, offered multi-dimensional threats. They were active and stuck in Woodley's face and they had safe leads. Woodley's most impressive wins were against Southpaws, who again, he has a bit of a stylistic preference for, who I think, being honest, didn't offer those same threats. And so I think that has to leave kind of a caveat on Woodley's most impressive wins, given how quickly he came apart when he didn't have the same advantages. Yeah, and also one thing that ties them all together, and perhaps it's more pronounced than Colby Cogton, most of all, but uh, all of them possess some all of them possess the ability to push the pace. They're able to uh, increase their volume output whenever needed. And Colby Covington in particular pursues a very high output fight uh, in most of his fights. And Kamaru Usman, even though he has been nicknamed Kamaru Snoozman on, on separate occasions for some of his more conservative performances, he still has an enormous gas tank, and in particularly against Tyron Woodley, he was able to pursue a very high output fight as well. And he tied the threat of his striking and the threat of his clinch and wrestling together to nulli- completely nullify Tyron Woodley to the point where his uh, corner started begging Tyron Woodley to go forward and throw in combination, something that he doesn't really do all that much throughout his career at all. And uh, that thing really points me to a certain... Uh, to a certain, uh, like, uh, interesting, uh, deco- interesting paradox about Tyron Woodley and uh, like his relationship with his corner. Like, why would you ask your fighter to suddenly develop uh, a pr- propensity for a certain skill that he doesn't really demonstrate in all his fights? And uh, I have a, a pet theory regarding that. I can't exactly test it or quantify it. Uh, because uh, I'm not in Woodley's corner, I'm not. Uh, I, I, I'm not able. I wasn't. I, I'm not able at all to uh, observe how Tyron Woodley behaves in the gym. But it's a, it's a very common phenomenon to have gym assassins or gym 
gym killers who are able to perform at the highest level in the gym and just basically clown uh, style on everyone in their gym. But when it comes to fight night, they aren't able to execute the same level of skill set they demonstrate in the gym. And I think it wouldn't really make any sense for Dean Thomas to, to uh, demand Tyron Woodley go forward and throw in combinations unless he's able to demonstrate that that's uh, that skill in the gym. Like that, that that's something to to think about, isn't it? So that really brings us to the some of the reasons for why Tyron Woodley is the way he is. Like, okay, I'm gonna just I'm just gonna pose it as a question for this segment of the discussion: Why Tyron Woodley is the way he is? Any like any suggestions? Any hypotheses for for why uh, he he is uh, he he's developed the fighting style that he's demonstrated in his career? Anyone? <laughs> Just complete silence. Um, so, so, I think that's a hard thing to answer because, like, it's a lot of armchair psychology. Because it's like, how exactly do you qualify? Like, how certain fighters um operate? Like, what makes them tick? Is it comfort? Is it what kind of things are they trained to do? Is it just self-awareness, like how they deal with adversity, kind of their process, et cetera, et cetera? I think Woodley is a fighter who wants to, um, who is comfortable, like in his kind of like own specific fight. He's kind of, he wants to be relaxed. He wants to like concede to kind of a certain pace as long as he's able to exploit that margin of error. Because it's like he wants to be attentive to like that little margin of error and then punish it. And so the thing is with Woodley, like you'll see him like you'll see him like in the fights he he's losing. Like you can see him try to do different things like against Rory. Like um, you'll see him like suddenly like fake level changes or like hand fight right, to try to like break it, it or like throwing out different feints like uh, he'll sometimes faint with an uppercut. He'll sometimes do, like, some shitty bolo punch feint, which is really interesting and never actually does anything with it. Um, you'll see him, like, sometimes throw a jab and whatnot, but the question is, like, how much is he pairing those things together in order to, like, really, really, like, capitalize? And so, once again, that kind of is the big problem, I think, with Woodley is Woodley is very comfortable in kind of a set amount of fight, and once you take him out of that there's kind of a lot of lingering problems that occur. And so I think, um, I think we've kind of been jumping around the big question here is like, how is Woodley successful? And can you really call Woodley inherently bad? I don't think calling him bad is perfectly tells the full story, but I think calling him limited is kind of a fair thing to say ultimately, because it's kind of like, you see him try things, but he doesn't really capitalize upon things. So once again, you'll see him employ level change threats, but he's reactive as soon as the opponent comes forward. You'll see him sometimes go to the body, but he doesn't do it consistently and only seems to do it if the opponent is going backwards. And the things go onward and onward. And I ultimately think basically just like the, the problem with Woodley is I don't think he knows how to parse things in kind of pairings. And so... Like, you'll see him try things, you'll see him think about things, 
but it doesn't seem like he knows how to put them together cohesively and kind of has to rely upon kind of a crutch a lot. And, and that leads to its own, like, brand of asterisks. I, I mean, think. yeah, uh, armchair psychology is certainly very prominent uh, amongst the fight fans because fight fans love a narrative, and sometimes they love a narrative too much. I mean, very often they love a narrative too much to when it, to the to the extent where it begins hurting the actual discourse. It's uh, it becomes more about the idea of a fighter than what the fighter actually demonstrates in uh, their career and their performances during the course of their career and in their everyday life but uh, i think as many coaches with a test mentality and uh, character and personality also substitute a large portion of how they interact with their fighter and uh, didn't didn't you can see that din thomas really struggles a lot with when it comes to uh, i suppose i mean i mean that it would be natural to assume that they have a, a good working relationship behind the scenes but when it comes on fight when the fight night comes when it's time for the actual fight to begin there is there are there is a certain like uh, a mental problem that uh, Tyron Woodley has to overcome and uh, many fighters were very open talking about their anxieties well not as many as we'd like because uh, once again being open about your anxieties uh, demonstrates self-awareness, and self-awareness is something we cherish a lot in uh, uh, in fighters we like. For example, GSP talked a lot about how um, uh, the build-up for the fight gives him the heebie-jeebies. He's like constantly high-strung, on edge, uh, worried about what if I lose, what if I get knocked out, what if I become embarrassed in the cage, and all that kind of stuff. Because it's not just skill that goes into fighting, not just attributes. Fight fighting... Fighting is <laughs> so much more complicated than physical build. <laughs> Fighting is much, is much more com complicated than physical build, athletic ability, or credentials. It's, uh, uh, a lot of it also revolves around the goals that the fighter uh, sets before themselves or uh, the, the, the hopes and aspirations, uh, their pers personality, their per character traits, all that kind of stuff. And uh, like overall... When you look back at Tyron Woodley's career and you point out the very impressive dynamic wins, Lola, Till, they, in reality, they aren't very informative of his actual skill set that he demonstrated during the course of his career over and over again, which is very strange. And perhaps it could point us to something that he's able to demonstrate in the gym, and that's why Tim Thomas constantly asks him to go forward and throw. Perhaps he is able to go forward and throw, but he's just unable to execute um, to the level that he's able, that he's been able to demonstrate in the gym, uh, it's hard to say, like whether he'd be successful in in other sports. But uh, just based on my knowledge of combat sports history and uh, examples, various historical examples from combat sports, just Tyron Woodley kind of sticks out as someone who actively dislikes fighting, which really harmed his career as a result. That's kind of the extent of uh, my thoughts on on. Or what's happening with him in the, in that cage? Like one of the reasons for 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 the style here that he's exhibited in the cage, like being worried. But there are multiple things you can talk about here. Like for example, maybe perhaps he's worried about his gas tank. Perhaps, and Tyler Woody himself. Uh, I think he, there was an appearance. I think it was on Heavy Hands. He like he's admitted. He's openly admitted to being deathly afraid of getting hit in the face. It's just. 
It's just a mortal phobia of his getting beat up, even though, ironically, despite having this phobia, uh, his last performances are characterized by him getting beat up over and over again. And uh, it's, it's kind of like he didn't, like... The Vicente Luque fight was an exception where he tried to go forward and got starched. And uh, he got knocked down and then uh, he basically got club and subbed. And uh, against Gilbert Burns and Kamaru Usman and Colby Covington, he kind of like strangely, paradoxically, counterintuitively prolonged his own beatings. Which is, I mean, but uh, I guess people with, uh, when you look at uh, other various examples from uh, other different fields and many different fields, and if you look into psychology, there's many examples of people exhibiting paradoxical behavior uh, and while having certain phobias, so I guess that explains that. But um, I mean, yeah, that's uh, armchair psychology, but it's something that is still like it's an avenue that uh, that needs to be explored sometimes to get a better understanding of someone. Uh, uh, I, I guess that's uh, that. That's my mandatory armchair psychology spiel. Wouldn't be Tengridome if I didn't do it, but. Uh, what other talking points would you like to bring up before we, I suppose, wrap this whole thing up? Um, I almost don't care if Woodley could have been a different fighter or if he could have delivered. I actually have negative care. I couldn't give a damn. Like, if we look at, you know, fundamentally... There are, people have kind of viewed Woodley in these two, I think, uh, dynamics that lack nuance. The first one was that he was good because he won and he started losing because of, you know, some last minute factor, like he got old or the other fighters are just better. You know, it was kind of a, a narrative that looked to statistics to justify in post and was not built on nuance. The other narrative, which uh, members of the fight site have been guilty of at times, was kind of an equally lacking in nuance narrative that, you know, Tyrone Woodley actually always sucked. And um, if you look at his tape, he was a limited fighter. He was a minimalist in the sense that he was a minimalist at everything, unlike so many other great minimalist fighters in history who might only have one or two preferred attacking techniques, but balance it with wonderful ring craft or a keen sense of how to control the dynamics of a fight. Rigondo, great example. Flawless ring craft, great pacing, great timing. His preferred, if you want to put it in um, quotation marks, strikes might have been minimalist, but so many other parts of his game were well-rounded and built on a coherent process that was much more than some of his parts. So the vulgar narrative of tape, as opposed to the vulgar narrative of statistics, was Tyron Woodley was a minimalist in every sense, and as a result, he was never that good. He just got gifted wins. Uh, I hope our little discussion has kind of tried to find a middle ground which highlights that, and I think this is kind of a recurring theme in Tengri Dome in general, Tyron Woodley, I think it is fair to say, is a fighter that has benefited tremendously and has overperformed to a degree because of his environment. So what do I mean by that? So let's go all the way back to the start to the Rory fight, which he lost. Rory represented those three threats that we've constantly highlighted and beat Tyron Woodley from pillar to post. It wasn't competitive, it wasn't interesting, and it didn't make Tyron Woodley look like a top five threat. 
Then Tyrone Woodley has a bunch of fights where he becomes champion and beats people up. And I think, and I sorry, I hope we've established relatively clearly and obviously referencing some fight side articles like the Gilbert Burns article that Tyrone Woodley at no point in his career as a champion ever had to answer any of those same threats. He never showed anything new that would convince us that he could handle those threats. And when he fought Kamaru Usman, he stepped out and had a five-round fight. Kamaru, despite being a very different fighter to uh, Rory, attacked those weaknesses in the same way... Sorry, using different methods, but in the same direction that Rory did and beat Woodley from pillar to post. And then Woodley fought Burns and the same thing happened. And he fought Covington and the same thing happened. And for me... I don't really care what Woodley supposedly has done in the gym. I don't really care what his excuses are. I don't really care what justifications people have about health or age or whatever. The reality is that when you look at the threats that were attacked by Burns, by Usman, by Covington to some extent, by Luque, Woodley never developed a single answer, a single substantive answer that worked into his process, that was reproducible, that was reliable, that stopped any of those guys. I compare, and I think at this point we have to say that safe leads, pressure, and volume are Woodley's weakness. I compare that to uh, GSP, who, you know went out and fought probably his most dangerous opponent ever in Hendricks and in one fight, in one five-round fight, was able to find a way to have repeated success against Hendricks to the point where he, in the eyes of many people, stole the fight. I look at Jose Aldo, who fought a fighter who is, in my opinion, I think in most people's opinion, better than anyone Tyron Woodley's ever fought in Max Holloway twice, and yes, he lost both fights, but they were not uncompetitive fights. You cannot... Uh, pretend to compare Tyron Woodley's one-sided beatings to Usman or Covington or Burns with the highly competitive Max Vassaldo fights where many people were saying if Max wasn't the great fighter he was, if you didn't have a chin made of granite you know, that was Superman strength, he would have been killed. And there are many obvious comparisons with other great fighters who somehow managed to make fights that were difficult comparative. I mean, hell, even look at something like Conor McGregor versus Habib. Did Habib eventually beat Conor McGregor in one-sided fashion? Yes. Did Conor find many successes that people had not found before and struggled to find after in at least controlling Habib or, you know, managing to snatch momentum of rounds away or softening, you know, uh, shall we say cushioning the curb stomp? Yes, he did. None of these things ever happened in Tyron Woodley's career. He either won with a relatively safe strategy that was comfortable to him against fights where he was in the best condition possible to beat them or he got stomped so that leads me to a question and it's a question that i ask anyone that defends tyron woodley here if tyron woodley had fought rory as a champion do you have any reason to believe the fight would have gone any differently would tyron have shown anything new in his fights against that same rory and my honest answer is that i i can't I can't see anything. I can't see any reason to believe that Tyron would have done any better in that fight. So, you know, greatness is a relative quantity, right? But for me, the the wheels came off the Woodley bus so fast and so one-sidedly and in a way that is so coherent with weaknesses in Woodley's process, you know, and Woodley never showed any real adaptation in a cohesive way 
I go back to that question and I'll kind of put it this way. Was Woodley ever truly presented with a threat in his title defenses that he didn't have the perfect answer to? No. So where that puts me on Woodley is I think he overperformed relative to the abilities he showed in the cage because of his title environment and because of the people he fought. I think portraying him as a dominant champion is something of a revisionist narrative because even in the Wonderboy fights, they weren't dominant fights. Many people had valid arguments that Wonderboy might have won at least one of those two fights. So... Yeah, I guess the short version is I didn't see much evidence that Woodley updated his toolkit. I didn't see much evidence that he overcame the challenges Roy asked of him. And I think at least to some extent you have to admit that while his defenses were impressive and they were to some degree enabled by the environment in which he existed. So, you know, and why are we being so critical of Woodley or why am I being so critical of Woodley? Because people were comparing him to GSP and maybe that's where I'll leave it, pass it to the two of you. I'm sorry, but compared to GSP, there is no comparison. It's not even, it's not worth the time. I think um, one really important point to establish here is, so we've we've been talking about Woodley quite a bit and we've been making some declarative statements the last few minutes and you're probably thinking, okay, so where's kind of the evidence for that? Where is kind of the points behind that? Well, the evidence is there because ultimately if you watch the fights that he has lost, uh, from Usman, Burns, and Covington, a lot of the same principal reasons for why Rory beat him exist in those fights just with a different kind of directionality. So it's like, like these are three different fighters. They aren't the same fighter as Rory McDonald, but they ask the same questions and so and allocate different kind of approaches based upon similar ideas so it's like Usman does the exact same thing as Rory does but tailored to his game it's like he understands I have to apply constant level change threats and then deliver upon them I have to use throwaways to build the gap and get into the clinch where I absolutely own most of the division I constantly like enforce my physical like gas tank game constantly Uh, work your body basically basically what this means uh, is that um there are examples of fighters overcoming much stiffer adversity in their respective divisions and their respective title runs. And uh, there are fighters who were able to answer difficult questions asked of them by their opposition. Like, there, there is, once again, going back, there's a, this preconceived notion surrounding, surrounding Tyron Woodley, and that the main preconceived notion revolves around the idea that UFC belt equals world class. You win a title equals you're a good fighter. And there are many things that go into this preconceived notions. Uh, this preconceived notion, one of them being that the UFC is pushes then then the narratives that benefit them very hard. They benefit from the perception that their champions are the best in the world. They're sure, there have been many disputes between Tyron Woodley and uh, the UFC and Dana White in particular, but the UFC is not a, so dumb as to shit on their own champion publicly to make it seem that... uh, Because it makes it look like the UFC just has dog shit champions. Like, of course, sure, they treat their champions like garbage. Many times, we've seen this happen many times over with Jose Aldo, with with, uh, Francis Ngannou, the most recent example, and many other examples during the course of UFC history, but... There is an argument 
that people make very often when it comes to Tyron Woodley, and the argument goes like, you can only beat the person in front of you. And sure, it's a very historic argument. It's a, it's a, it is it is very well rooted in uh, the combat sports discourse amongst fight fans. But this the argument of you can only beat the person in front of you goes both ways. It doesn't shield you from comparisons to champions who have faced steeper opposition, passed harder tests, and as a result had more well regarded reigns. For example. Uh, for example, let's take an example of a fighter that uh, the, the the fight side in particular doesn't hold in a very high regard. And still, uh, this fighter definitely had an actual dominant reign. The fighter I'm talking about is John Jones, widely perceived as the greatest fighter of all time in MMA. The fight side vehemently disagrees with this position. And uh, to know why, I, I would suggest you go back and... Uh, read the criteria for our, for our uh, top 20 greatest of all time, uh, greatest fighters of all time in MMA. Ed Gallo has a very clear system by which he ranks wins and ranks a position because the quality of a position is the primary criteria, criteria by which we rate fighters. I don't necessarily care about the GOAT talk much at all. I, I just don't care. I mostly care about cool fighters having cool fights, but regardless... It's a very common topic of discussion in MMA, and it's a topic of discussion that, perhaps to my displeasure, kind of dominates the discourse around fighters. But still, it's it, it's a very useful launching point for deeper, more nuanced discussions regarding fighters when it comes to evaluating their resumes and all that stuff, kind of stuff. Uh, like let's compare John Jones to Tyron Woodley, shall we? Okay. There are many caveats regarding John Jones's uh, title reign. He's faced a position that was well out of their prime by the time he faced them. People like uh, Shogun, who was shot by the time uh, John Jones was able to beat him. That, that, that there's just no two ways about it. That's the fact. He was old. He was. Uh, he's acquired tremendous mileage even by the time when he competed in uh, in Pride. He was already kind of veering towards short territory. What do I mean by short? Short is uh, something that happens when a fighter reaches the amount of mileage, uh, uh, at which point he's, uh, she or he are no longer able to perform at the same level that they performed in their prime. That can be due to injury, that can be due to head trauma, that can be due to lack of confidence. Many different uh, factors for, for a fighter to enter short territory. But still, that, that's something that happened. Also, uh, Quinton Jackson, well out of the, his prime, uh, spent most of his prime at Pride, and uh, was pretty much pretty much didn't care about training at that point already. Lyoto Machida, undersized, also fairly old at the time. Rashad Evans, fairly old at the time, undersized. Many, many, many different caveats there regarding Joan Jones. What isn't what doesn't necessarily, uh, what isn't put in, que uh, in question here is that he was able to absolutely beat the ever-loving crap out of those fighters. Okay, and when he f and some of those fighters were fairly difficult matchups for him. For example, Alexander Gustafsson. Yes, sure, Alexander Gustafsson didn't necessarily do 
like really super crafty, like genius things. Like he basically all he did was get on his bicycle and run around the cage. Still, he gave John Jones uh, a fair amount of trouble on the feet. Daniel Cormier gave John Jones a fair amount of trouble on the feet in transitional attacks, in uh, in wrestling, in striking. Overall, sure, John Jones dominated Daniel Cormier still. But what this tells us that when faced when faced with a stiffer test than usual in uh, in Daniel Cormier or Alexander Gustafsson, John Jones still found ways to dominate them and win the fight without any like asterisks, without any uh, quotation marks, without any questions with regards to like, oh, was it really a win? Like with, uh, for example, Tyron Woodley, while still in his prime, I must add, because at the tail end of his career, Jim Jones still had those performances against uh, Tiago Santos and Dominic Reyes. Dominic Reyes was pretty much a loss, and Tiago Santos is a questionable win. I don't think uh, like anyone who goes back and watches that fight and like grades the fight and rates the fight based on the actual criteria, the actual criteria outlined in the MMA rules. That uh, that that's something that's that will be put into question. But uh, John, okay, John Jones uh, like had uh, multiple subpar performances at the tail end of his career. Did he lose? 20 rounds in a row without winning a single round. No, he didn't. Of course he didn't. We don't hold John Jones in that in, in, in like very esteemed regard. We don't like think John Jones is all, all that hot when you rate him against fighters, for example, like Max Holloway or uh, Jose Aldo, because he, they faced way steeper opposition. And if anyone wants to wishes to argue against that point, uh, I'm sure we're going to release. Uh, as like uh, either a podcast or an article uh, that uh, explains why we think that. But also, I would also I would like you to I would like to direct you to the video produced by Julian Lung, where he talks about how Aljamain Sterling is a much more skillful fighter than John Jones, and he goes into precise detail regarding why he thinks that. With that out of the way, uh, we we may move on to back to the actual topic at hand. Okay, there are. Uh, you, when compared to f- f- fighters with more well-regarded reigns, what does Tyron Woodley really bring to the table here? Like, for example, when you compare him to someone, uh, to someone who is uh, widely esteemed as the greatest featherweight of all time, like Jose Aldo, or the alternative version is Max Holloway. What does he bring to the table? Okay, Max Holloway lost a couple of fights against uh, Alexander Volkanovsky and arguably won the, the second fight. Tyron Woodley. I mean, I just there's no two ways about it. Tyron Woodley is pl- just simply plain, with, without any caveats, not as great as some of these fighters that I've just described, and not as great as someone like GSP. You can defend Tyron Woodley all you want. You can talk about facing like uh, about things like you can only beat the person in front of you all you want. It doesn't change the fact that he's simply not as great as some of these fighters, and that he's simply like that he simply does not possess the same level of skill as those fighters are, as those fighters do. I'm sorry. That's just that's that, that's just how it is. When you combine both the present, I, I think a really short way. Sorry. 
just a really short way of saying it is none of none of, no fight against an all-time great fighter ever comes easy even john jones you know nobody ever got a win against him for free they had to fucking fight for it but woodley has given up fights that just don't feel mm-hmm. compelling at all yeah that's pretty much the longer short of it colby Covington. uh colby Covington. like uh do you think that uh like uh do you think that Colby Covington is truly like the poisonous matchup that is like designed to beat Tyron Woodley? I I wouldn't I don't think I agree with that. I think that Tyron Woodley possesses the necessary attributes that would would have allowed him to beat Colby Covington were he more skillful if, if he had a different approach to fighting. If you watch If you watch the Covington fight with Woodley, you see Woodley apply different like ideas like actively coming forward, pressuring, applying more throwaways. It's just the same problem happens again. Covington's like, oh, that's kind of all you got. You're still looking for that right hand. I just have to pressure you, put the pace on you, be willing to exchange with you, and then mix in the takedowns, and there's not much you can do. Oh, like, you see Woodley try these things, but it's, once again, he doesn't know how to parse those things. And so, once again, he's beaten by a different fighter with, like, different ideas. And it, it it's like the same with Burns. Like, Burns applies more of a ballsier approach by willing, engaging with the pocket and, like, letting Woodley throw the right hand. But it's, like, somehow even more damning because it's like, hey, Woodley's one plan is, like, taken apart by a counterpuncher. And, like, Saram and Ryan already broke that fight down in their article. But it's, like, once again, same, same questions, different fighters. So it's, like... How the thing about Woodley, I ultimately think is like, I, I think you can't deny it. Like Woodley got successes, and is inherently not like easy to beat. Like he's kind of one of those weird gimmick bosses you'd find in a video game, where like, it's not like inherently someone you're gonna run over. But if you aren't like approaching it specific ways, you aren't exactly gonna have a lot of success against it either. But if you're doing the right things at all the right times, it is shockingly easier than you think. And it's like, it's just the margin for error is just kind of big because he hits hard or he's fast, he's dangerous. But still, he really, really got by upon leveraging his kind of specific attributes. And so there, there's the thing with Woodley, although like he's dangerous, there's caveats, there's asterisks. And and ultimately, it's not so much luck, it's more so, like, certain guys just didn't pose the same questions and didn't have the same answers. And it's kind of as simple as that with Woodley, and that's kind of what keeps him from really being highly praised by, I, I think, us at this site. But also why I think it's hard to look at him and kind of find things without going, but... Yeah, so much. The, the most common narrative uh, about Tyron Woodley in that, uh, amongst especially amongst uh, Tyron Woodley fans, is that he's actually like uh, an extremely contemplative uh, and intelligent fighter, and uh, like the UFC and Joe Rogan and many other people close to the UFC uh, exhibited, tried to put the narrative out there that Tyron Woodley is actually just uh, just a, strate- a master strategist, and that's why he only relies upon this right hand. The counter-argument I would provide here is you venture beyond MMA, or even while staying in the same MMA lane, you look at fighters who are able to uh, control the flow of the fight. 
uh, without relying on a single tool or trying different things. It's um, it's both simple and complicated, the Tyron Woodley thing. Uh, leveraging attributes is perfectly fine for any fighter. In fact, it's what you should do if you wish to hang in there at the elite level. But you, it has to be backed up by fighting fundamentals. And what do I mean by fighting fundamentals? It's having the right ringcraft. It's t tailoring your approach to any particular opponents that you are, you are going to face. It's utilizing your tools. Tools, I have to add, not just one tool. Even if you have one primary tool which you utilize, you have to have ancillary tools that complement that primary tool. That's how you win consistently at the high level by leveraging... I'm sorry, by leveraging both your attributes and your fundamentals and your actual skill set, your specialized skill set that you may possess beyond those fundamentals. You have to something you can fall back onto if your attributes fail you. Or you have to have to have or in the case if your skills fail, you have the attributes to win. But when you simply rely on your attributes and one singular tool all the time, and if you continue doing the same thing over and over again and you continue losing that's not really trying anymore. That's just losing with ex with extra steps. That's all there is to it. Just, I'm sorry, but that's just how it is. Like, I guess in conclusion, I guess we've talked about this for what approaching two hours now. Uh, I guess uh, hacks talked about how greatness is relative. I'm sorry, but uh, the way that. Uh, Tyron Woodley wheels came off the bus uh, so fast is very significant, but like once again, comparing him to other people, like the, the person he's beaten, Robbie Lawler, he's had a longer career and took significantly more damage and was clearly short at the end of his reign, but was still forced to adapt and overcome, and he utilized his fundamentals, the, fundam the fundamental skills that he's acquired during the course of his career, to still win some. It's the entire reason why he's had this uh, second career resurgence, uh, even after he got caught, cut from the UFC and came back as a completely different fighter, a much more skillful fighter. He tried different things. He learned. He continued adapting and uh, continued growing as a fighter. Just did Woodley do that? No. <sighs> Just, I guess the final question is uh, that that's left is... Uh, how we uh, evaluate the accomplishments, uh, the accomplishments that uh, uh, Woodley was able to have. Uh, how can we attribute the greatness of a dominant champion to Woodley when, like, when you when we uh, when we are faced with uh, actual empirical evidence that he w was never able to adapt or fix his issues, and just. Uh, how much of it is luck and how much of it is matchmaking. I guess we talked about this briefly, but to just uh, put a put a like a hard cap on things to to cap things off with a with a uh, basically just a final statement. Who who would like to who would like to have the honor to do that? <laughs> honor in massive quotation marks. No one. <laughs> Just nothing to say. <laughs> or... I, 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 I think, think it has... I th sorry, I think it... No, go ahead, Dan. I feel like, ultimately, um, 
I, I think we've covered most of what we've wanted to with this discussion, but it, it it's kind of hard to, I, I think, parse a lot of this in a way that fully, like, captures the big picture here. But it's like, if, once again, it, it comes back to the, those questions of context and, and methodology of, like, analysis, it's like, if you aren't looking at things referentially and big picture and asking, like, outside-the-box questions... I think Woodley is kind of a good, like, context-sensitive case of, like, okay, how much comparatively can you look at this guy compared to other guys? It's just a roundup to this discussion. And ask yourself once again, did he answer questions, yes or no? How can you do that based answer that based upon what happened? And ultimately, what kind of conclusions can you draw from that? And then decide how can you exactly describe Woodley and once again I think there were two narratives we had once again Woodley didn't lose and became top of the world ergo good but Woodley also bad because got lucky and neither of those really tell the full story so I think this pod is kind of a genuine attempt more than anything else at trying to kind of come to a moderate ground at answering those two questions and kind of going, well, yeah, Woodley definitely did win, but there are caveats again. And I, I wouldn't go as far to say he was inherently bad, but I do think there's always like going to be massive limitations on his style that if you saw certain fighters do the right things, he looks way, way less impressive and more vulnerable than really his record would indicate. I would I would just add to that by saying like I think you know as 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 I hope we've been able to establish Woodley had a bunch of weaknesses that before his championship run Rory took apart throughout this his championship run because of I won't say an easy ride because his fights weren't easy because of the divisional environment Woodley was never truly stress tested on those weaknesses the moment he was stress tested on those weaknesses he came apart in one-sided fashion and repeatedly it wasn't just one fight that he got smashed on it it was um, others for me this establishes a few things firstly I can't put Woodley in the upper pantheon of all-time great fighters because I, I you know, all of the other all-time great fighters when they had difficult matchups, be it stylistically or due to age or due to decay or whatever, they made incredibly competitive fights out of it. Every single all-time great fighter in my book has accomplished that from John Jones to uh, GSP and Jose Aldo. That's my first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that I think in some sense uh, Woodley's story is far more tragic and far more cautionary than a guy who won the title won the title defended it three times retained it once i think those numbers are right would ever tell you because there is a tremendous amount of wasted potential in woodley all of the things that his camp was telling him that he needed to do in his fights would have made him a much greater fighter the third thing i would say is that i think woodley kind of highlights the limitations of a narrative that is built on trying to rationalize with statistics from wins or trying to rationalize with tape footage from wins. You need to look at the broader picture of a fighter's career and particularly where they struggled in losses. 
And maybe the last point I would say is that I think Woodley as a career and as a fighter mm. really draws to attention the importance of having a process and an evolution that grows and develops over time. Because if I was to say anything uh, to, to plus one what the both of you have said, Woodley did try new things in fights. Woodley did try answers, but Woodley never integrated any of those things he tried into a cohesive system or process that, you know, built on what we already knew he could do. Have a mixed wrestling threat, knock people out with the right hand. So, yeah, I think Woodley... Definitely the the paper story definitely doesn't tell you what he truly accomplished. I think he overperformed if you consider his actual abilities that he showed us in fights. That doesn't demean any of his title defenses, but it does add some important context. And I would uh, finally point out, yeah, I think Woodley is a cautionary tale for people going forward. The tragedy of Woodley is not that he was uninteresting or anything like that. I know some people don't care about him because they think he was boring. The tragedy of Woodley is that um, despite showcasing so much growth as a person, he didn't really display much growth at all as a fighter. And despite being one of the most athletically gifted fighters I think we've had in... uh, in welterweight his career really showed what happens when either that athleticism runs out versus luke or when people catch up to the one thing you're selling and decide they're not very afraid of it anymore because they have the answers and you've never had the answers to those questions yeah i mean there's a reason why we picked him as a case study for certain uh issues that people may run into when evaluating fighters careers and uh, evaluating uh, a fighter's skill set. And I think, I hope that um, the examples that we brought up and uh, the the reasoning that we just outlined during the course of this podcast gave you a better idea on how how you should really evaluate fighters and uh, evaluate skill sets and... uh, in a more accurate fashion and uh, just come to the right conclusions and uh, just being able to set up a right process for for these evaluations is the most important thing you can do and uh, uh, obviously uh, the main takeaways here is that you should just simply watch lots of fights and study fighters from different combat sports not just MMA because certain things uh, certain things that are good in MMA may not be uh, considered good in other combat sports at all and of course other combat sports uh take place in a different context but uh still things like form good use of uh tools like uh, good shot selection good ring craft there are all uh, good footwork they are all universal across combat sports beyond that uh there needs to be a degree of like comparative reasoning that you have to be able to grasp uh, when you compare fighters from certain uh, from uh, champions from different divisions or just plain fight- fighters from different divisions you have to be able to take the, the divisional context into account you have to be able to take um, the opposition fight- faced by the fighter the stylistic uh, stylistic matchups faced by the fighter into account and Evaluate the fighters in difficult situations. Evaluate the fighter in situations in which uh, he or she may not necessarily possess 
the correct answers, but uh, still able to come up with the next be best thing. That's where a fighter is really tested. It's a fight. It's a clash of skill sets. It's a clash of attributes and personalities. I have to take all this into account. And if the, fight, if the fighter just simply folds, whenever faced with something with uh, uh, an out-of-context problem, there are two main takeaways you may come to. There are two main conclusions. There are two primary conclusions you may have. Is that either the divisional meta is developed in such a way where the fighter is like a truly an out-of-context problem for the whole division. So it's it's not really like as damning as it could be if it were a fighter that is simply that whose skill set is simply alien to you. It's simply a skill set in which it's simply an area of skill in which you are unable to operate. That's important. And uh, beyond that, just um, take context into account. Take the broader career context and divisional context into account if you desire to, if you are, if you insist on using stats to back up your analysis and the data that you provide. And beyond that, just basically like using using both tape study and stats and uh, everything else that I've described and comparing what you see unravel on the screen to the fundamental basics outlined by coaches and what is considered good fighting skills across all combat sports is essential to be able to come to the right conclusions. And above all, it's just a question of experience and uh, the right approach, the right critical thinking approach and uh, uh, the, the correct, the proper logical reasoning to use in this situation to just to just not not breed any more bizarre narratives, any more vulgar, I suppose, evaluations of fighters. And that's pretty much it. Uh, yeah, this, was, uh, this discussion has been a very long time in the making. Took a lot of energy out of us all. Uh, it's kind of like, in retrospect, all the conclusions that we came to are kind of obvious. But I guess sometimes obvious uh, things need to be restated to be made clear to avoid misunderstandings in the future. So I guess it, it was all worthwhile. And I guess we kind of explained our own methodology in the process. So I guess, I guess mission accomplished, I guess, at least for this topic. How do you guys feel? Do you think we need to get into more details with some other examples like this, or have we pretty much exhausted the topic? For a for a if you donate ten thousand dollars in a month to Patreon, we'll force Ryan to actually give in depth frame by frame commentary on the uh, Woodley versus uh, Paul uh, boxing match. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do that. I will also be the co-commentator because Ryan will definitely not want to do it alone and I am the only one crazy enough to watch it with him. Yeah, you heard the man. Just give us money. Give us many, many, many monies. Yeah. And uh, ensure our prosperity. Yeah, give us, give us, yeah, give us money. Give us your money. Yeah, basically, like, I guess this is the seg segue for me to, uh, to, to do the plugs. Visit the fight site. I have uh, plugged uh, the articles that have that we've uh, written on the fight site. Check out those. It's uh, the fight-site.com. Uh, you may find many different uh, analytical articles in there. 
meta-analysis, uh, breakdown, fight breakdowns, all that kind of stuff. Uh, then uh, the most recent article you've written was uh, on Vicente Saldivar, right? Uh, that That's a very yep. illustrative example to compare uh, against Tyron Woodley. The man does very interesting things. I uh, would very much recommend you read the article and then watch the fights in which uh, Vicente Saldivar participated in. Beyond that, check out our Patreon. Uh, you may subscribe for as little as three bucks per month. You gain access to tons of content. You gain access to all of our content. It's like 300 pieces of like alternate commentary, uh, podcasts, exclusive podcasts, exclusive fight breakdowns, all that good stuff. And uh, me and Fenyu have launched a series called Three Rounders Marathon, we, we, where we watched underappreciated, underrated, or just plain forgotten fights across many different divisions. For now, the focus has been on the big boys. We watched fights from welterweight, middleweight, light heavyweight, and most recently, actually heavyweight. We've actually found really cool fights from those divisions. So uh, to just showcase that light heavyweight, middleweight, and heavyweight are not just wastelands. And uh, it's not that uh, heavyweights and upper weight classes in general are just incapable of having good fights. They they are entirely capable of having good fights. It's just that the level of skill is just not quite there yet. But we showcase some cool fights, and the, if you are sick of... If you ever wanted to revisit a fight... And you couldn't because uh, fucking Mike Goldberg ruins your experience. Please feel free to check out our alternate commentaries on Patreon. And uh, yeah, uh, also, there is also a Discord channel, Discord server, I'm sorry. Uh, you may join it for as little as five bucks per month. Also gives you access to all of our Patreon content and also gives you a direct line of access to our stuff. You may ask us questions. I am very active. We're all fairly active in the Discord. We are all very eager and willing to answer your questions, and because uh, talking to our patrons sometimes leads to very positive results, such as sometimes patrons give us uh, podcast prompts, and sometimes they like simply talking to people just uh, allows us to come to 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 just come up with certain like really good thoughts and really good ideas that we may then explore on our podcast episodes. So, and just. Uh, simply, you also gain access to just you. You will also be able to consult to to discuss fights and talk about whatever with like-minded fight fans. Just a really, really nice place. The Discord is just a very chill community. I highly recommend you check it out. And yeah, I get. I, I think that's 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 pretty much it. That's that. Uh, any plugs from you guys? Anything that you are currently writing or are going to release in the future? Or any projects that you would like to plug? Hope you like violent rivalries, because that's what I'm writing about. Oh, there you go. Uh, highly recommend you check out Dan's articles. They're very well researched, very thoroughly. Just Dan is very thorough, as I think this uh, the most our podcasts prove. In the words, in the words of Ryan Wagner, I overass things, and that is a thousand percent yeah. true. So many people half-ass things, then overasses things, if anything. So there you go. All right, thank you for joining me today. Uh, we've pretty much covered everything that we wanted to cover, and that's uh, that's that's always good. And uh, thank you for listening. And uh, hopefully you will. You will have found this episode 
very helpful if you wish to pursue your own analysis or you simply wish to understand the sport better. This has been Tengridome episode 21. Uh, I guess the preliminary title would be The Woodley Pod. <laughs> That's what we've been calling this episode uh, uh, all this time. It's also called The Frozen One or Perpetually Sad Face yeah, Fighter. The, 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 those things, yeah. But I'm going to come up with a better title in post. Anyway, uh, I guess that's enough of that. See you later. Cheers. Well, that was exhausting. Kind of like his career. Oh, dear.